to see everybody today. Um, we're actually going to go through Acts 2. For those of you that know, we started the book of Acts. And um, I vowed when we started this that I would not do a chapter a week because it would take us 28 weeks. Um, but the teacher side of me has a really hard time because there's so much in every chapter. Um, so this is the commitment I'll make. We're going to do Acts 2 today. <laughs> and then when we move on from here, we're going to do more overviews. <laughs> we will do more overviews. Um, and I'm going to intentionally refrain from saying that Acts chapter 2 is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Because I happen to notice that every time I preach anywhere, whatever passage I'm preaching on, I always say, this is my favorite passage of scripture. Um, but honestly, Acts chapter 2, I know Daryl covered the beginning of it. I think he said he made it to verse 5 last week. Do you love my husband? I was sick in bed, and he was like, I will cover for you. So I said, do you want my notes? He said, no, thank you. <laughs> um, so he said he made it to uh, verse 5. Um, so he kind of covered the beginning, but really one of the reasons that I love Acts chapter 2, and this is kind of your overview before we go verse by verse, is if you think about it this way, it's a group of 120 people that respond to Jesus' words to gather together in an upper room and pray. And actually, if you really look closely at the Greek, I know there's a lot of debate over house and temple, whether they were in the house, a house or the temple. Um, it truly, truly, from everything I've researched, I really believe it was a house, just as the, the language reveals. Um, but anyway, more than the house factor, the 120. If you look what was born out of this very, very small company of people, to me, this just fully even declares the mystery of the gospel of who Jesus is, that out of seeming insignificance, out of seeming smallness, out of even that which, and if you think about even in our modern culture in modern day, there's a lot of things that we esteem and we hold in high regard and that we value that oftentimes really do not reveal what God values himself. You know, my son actually, I have this wonderful app on my iPad and it's more actually like a teaching, preaching tool, and it goes through um, different historical things throughout Israel, but it actually does like small documentaries on the birth of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus. It's just, it's a wonderful tool. Well, my little two-year-old, he actually loves it, and his favorite one is the birth of Jesus, and I can honestly say I have to listen to it like five times a day because he'll say, the birth of Jesus, mommy, but the reason I'm saying this is it even speaks to me as far as Acts 2 in the birth of Jesus that all throughout the gospel, like when they're going through the birth of Jesus, I'm going to be honest with you, as much as I've, was, I've been raised in the Christian faith, I know the birth of Jesus story. Every time I'm hearing it, even through this documentary, my heart falls in love with Jesus more and more and more because what they expound upon and even go through is how he came in the form of a baby, a weak really weak, helpless baby. They go through the manger scene, and they actually, for those of you that don't know, um, basically in Bethlehem, Queen Helena actually built what's called um, the, the Church of the Nativity. There's actually a, a, a mammoth basilica there. And basically the, the very site that they actually feel like the manger was at, there's like this hole in the, um, the basilica with like this gold star. 
and there's just tourists everywhere and, and you know flashes from cameras and crowds and pushing and and basically what this guy and my son actually quotes him he'll be playing with his toys and you'll hear him actually say he'll say the night that Jesus was born I do not think he was pushed by crowds or the flashes of cameras <laughs> he'll go and I'm like listening to him going no I don't think he was either and he's like but he was born in a manger but when this gentleman goes through this he actually goes to a physical manger and as he's going through all of it, you just realize, like, the I know it sounds awful, but the word, even the poor, pitiful state of amongst smelly animals, and really all throughout the gospel, this is what you actually see, is God takes what seemingly looks insignificant in the eyes of man. He takes weakness. He takes that which is obscure. And somehow out of that, he, he uses it to birth the kingdom of God and do something supernatural. And you find that again here in Acts 2. You find a company of 120 people, they're gathered in a house. They're not in a large stadium, they're not, you know, they're not doing really, even in the eyes of man, they weren't even doing public ministry that looked productive and successful and all of that. They were in the low posture of prayer. The help, and honestly, prayer is almost like a helpless posture of, of declaring our dependency is on you and you alone. You must come and save us. You must come and advance the gospel. Human effort, human ingenuity can never produce the kingdom of God or those results. So you find basically this declaration in Acts 2 all over again. And look what's born out of it. Honestly, the New Testament church was born out of what was seemingly insignificant and lowly and helpless in nature. They weren't, it wasn't a big, you know, I go to a lot of those meetings where the big whiteboard is on the thing and we're going to strategize and we're going to build it and we're going to, you know, how we're going to go after city transformation, how we're going to, their strategy was not in the place of what they could build or what they could produce. Yeah. It was Holy Spirit come. I mean, they, they were in a posture of just waiting. I mean, even, let's be honest, for all of us, if you've ever been in a waiting season, waiting for anything, it's, it's frustrating. Everything in your flesh and in your strength wants to do something to produce change, to produce the right results. But it's that place of being utterly dependent. And out of that, you have the book of Acts. It's the birth of the New Testament church. It's literally the birth of the greatest missionary endeavor, the preaching of the gospel. You have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that was spoken of by the prophet Joel. So, I mean, you have long-awaited prophecy being fulfilled. You have 3,000 added to the kingdom in one day. It was the birth of a movement, a movement that touches us even to this day. A movement that we read about, that we glean from, that we even long for the kind of outpouring that we saw in the book of Acts. This was all born out of 120 people basically positioning themselves in obedience and desperation before God. This is why I love Acts 2. This is really why I love Acts 2. Because it speaks of who he is and that apart from him, we have nothing. Apart from him. So let's just actually, I'm going to pick up where Daryl left off. For those of you, here's your overview. I know we, I always sort of do overview, but then I go verse by verse. But if you think of Acts this way, that actually you, through the book of Acts, you're actually studying three separate sermons. There's three sermons that were preached. The first one we're going to actually look at today, Acts 2 is the sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. Um, there's the sermon that Paul preached and the sermon that Peter, um, Stephen preached. 
And I want to say it this way to you is for me personally, I have a passion for us as a community to look at these three sermons that were preached because I figure that whatever they were or whatever the Holy Spirit was highlighting, whatever the Holy Spirit was addressing in these three sermons is probably very, very foundational and instrumental for our entire faith. And ultimately, I feel, I feel like it's directional even for us. That what they were preaching is ultimately what the church, the themes that the church should be focused upon in declaring and trumpeting. So we're going to look closely at Peter's um, sermon today. Um, so in verse 14, you actually find Peter standing, uh, standing up. But I just actually want to highlight before that in verse 12, it says, So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, said, They are full of new wine. So basically you have the scene of people gathering, questioning, and it even uses the word mocking, that there was mocking to take place. And I want to just highlight to us, I think oftentimes we think and we feel as though Christianity should somehow be like the popular choice or somehow everyone's going to pat us on the back and say doing a good job. It's almost like when we receive opposition or ridicule or mocking, it alarms us and shocks us as if like, why? Why? Why would anybody mock? Why would anybody? But I've recently come to the realization that even with, with the crucifixion of Jesus, the utter mockery of the man Christ Jesus, instead of him receiving the reverence and honor that was due him. I mean, all of society and culture was mocking the lordship of Jesus Christ ultimately. And so it shouldn't really even shock us in our day and in our time where there that, when there's that same mocking of the purity of the gospel and the lordship of Jesus Christ. And in verse 14, you find it says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and, and heed my words. Before we even move on to what he preaches, I want to highlight that he actually says, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. That's a very pointed statement actually to those that just took part just weeks before in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It wasn't to an obscure group of people. It was to a pointed group of people that he was addressing and speaking to. It was the men of Jer Jerusalem. It was the men that bore witness and actually were a part of what just took place. Let this be known to you and heed my words. Verse 15. For these are not drunk as you suppose since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servant and on my maid servant, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We're going to take a few minutes and look at verse 17 through 21 before we move on to the second part of um, Peter's sermon. But just really highlighting here, first and foremost, what I, I, I actually want to read to you what one commentator said. It says, um, it is observable that though Peter was filled with the Holy Ghost and spoke with tongues as the Spirit gave him utterance, yet he did not set aside the Scripture, nor think himself above Scripture. 
but yet his discourse and much of his speaking is quotation of the Old Testament. So here you have a man experiencing the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that's been long prophesied, and that it almost instead of moving kind of with a new trend in a new way and kind of creating almost a new doctrine around it, you find him actually just quoting the Old Testament that gave validity and even authority to what it was that they were experiencing. And it says, um, much of his discourse is quotation of the Old Testament to which he appeals and with which he proves what he has to say. Christ scholars never learn above their Bibles, and the Spirit is, not, is given not to supersede Scripture, but to enable us to understand the Scriptures. I mean, I, I love that because honestly, I think that much of the debate, even within the body of Christ, could be silenced. If instead of, because honestly, there's much of the debate around doctrine and theology and things like that, some of it really comes down to cultural trends of adapting Christianity to who we are as a culture and in the Western world and all of those things. But really, for all of that to be silenced and to go back to Scripture, that that is our final authority, that we don't adapt or, or even alter the Word of God based upon our circumstance or our culture, or our reality, but that this is the final authority. Um, I also really just wanted to highlight to you that where it starts out and it says, um, it shall come to pass in the last days. It's really important that we understand that in Joel 2, which is actually what he is referencing, that basically the last days, he's not saying last days as in, so last days and within a week Jesus is going to return. We have to understand that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit 2,000 years ago, as we're reading of in, in Acts 2, it marked the beginning of the beginning of the beginning of the last days, which is a season in time. So we are living in, in that season in time. And it's interesting because the apostles, if you look at the book of Acts with the, the urgency and the fire that they lived if you look at even the clarity that was upon their lives, it was because they were living in this reality of it being the last days. And see, when we hear it in our day and time, we kind of go, well, does that mean I'm going to see like the return of Jesus? It's more the understanding of it's a season in time and it was a marking of time um, that basically Joel tells us that the outpouring is a time indicator. It is the start of the prophetic time clock of the last days. Because that's actually what Joel said, in the last days I will pour out my spirit. Um, that basically what it's speaking to is that the power that is coming upon you will take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that that is the season and the time that we are living in. Um, really what I want to look at is two things. I want to make mention of um, the fact that it says your sons and your daughters shall prophesy the issue of gender. That it's not one gender or the other. That it's not something that's taking a place amongst the women or taking place amongst the men. You can kind of just put this in your reference um, when you kind of come into contact with the debate regarding even gender in the body of Christ and how God speaks to us and who he speaks through. This is saying sons and daughters that he'll speak to. It's also speaking of young men and old men. This is truly the move of God, that it's generational, that it's not just something amongst the youth, and it's not just something amongst the elder, but it's the bridging of the generations. And it also speaks of men servants and maid servants. This even speaks as, as far as economic lines, 
that it was the servants among them, that it was those that were of the lower class. I mean, this speaks to gender, it, it speaks to age, it speaks to economics, it speaks and it says that basically my spirit will move amongst all of you. That this, and ultimately what's even revealed here, where it, sp it speaks about you will prophesy, you will see visions and dreams, this is the spirit of prophecy. This is a prophetic spirit that when there's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it comes with the spirit of prophecy. And you know, I don't want to take a ton of time to discuss, to discuss prophecy because I want to make sure we get through this whole chapter today. I'm looking at time. Um, but what I do want to say is basically when you study out prophecy um, in the Hebrew and in the Greek, that basically, yes, it can be the foretelling of the future. That's normally how we think of prophecy. We think about it in the sense, and some of you might even say, well, I'm not very prophetic because I don't get, like, you're going to get a new car or you're going to get a new house, like, for people. But what I want to say is that the understanding of this, even this word prophecy here, it's far greater than even foretelling of details. It's far greater than that. And really what it is, it's speaking of divine revelation by the Spirit of God. It's speaking of revelation that can only come by the Spirit of God. So basically what I want you to understand is that, um, and okay, so how many of you were here when Christina shared her testimony as far as what the Lord did in her life? Basically, even a testimony like that where whether it's scripture that comes alive to somebody, you can read the same passage of scripture year after year and know it your whole life. How many of you have ever been reading and then all of a sudden it's as if you see that scripture verse in a whole new light, a whole new understanding. It's applicable to your life and it speaks to you in the moment. That is the spirit of prophecy. That is the spirit of God speaking directly to you. It is the life of the spirit being quickened in you. And so it's understanding. It's that experiential. And I mean, revelation, sometimes when we hear the word revelation, we think it's like some hooky pooky. Oh, I'm going to see the beasts that are, you know, <laughs> or, the, or the visions of revelations like John did on the Isle of Patmos. You know, no, just forget all that for a second. Revelation can simply be your heart gets struck with a fresh revelation of the grace of Jesus Christ. Revelation can be in a moment of despair and darkness, a, a truly hope floods your spirit and you are quickened with new and fresh hope. That's the spirit of God. That's the spirit of God quickening life inside of you. And that truly is, a, even as it's spoken of here, prophecy. It's the Spirit of God coming alive in your moment, in this present moment, and you are experiencing the life and the power of Jesus Christ. Um, so I just wanted to clarify as far as prophecy, and yes, prophecy in the sense of someone standing up and giving a word, but you know, I'm, I'm, I have of the firm, firm mind that as, as basically Peter is quoting this, that it shall come to pass, I will pour out my spirit my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters, he's speaking about prophecy. I'm of the firm mind that the next part that we're about to read in this passage of scripture is prophecy. So I want you, as we're looking at this next passage of scripture, and even the, the latter part of what Peter preaches, he's preaching Bible. He's not preaching any kind of like new idea that he plucked out of the clouds, some abstract thought of prophecy. He's taking the words of the Old Testament, and he's preaching them. But you know what's happening? We're going to look closely at this. As he's preaching, the words that he's preaching are coming alive in the Jewish hearers that are surrounding him. 
These are Jewish hearers that just got done seeing the mocking of Jesus Christ that have been raised their entire life thinking that even their heritage is enough and they are justified because of their Jewish faith. They've been fortified their entire life and years and even up to the point where Jesus just walked to the earth and was crucified in their midst. But yet in one moment as Peter's preaching, in one moment, G Peter goes through the history of who Jesus Christ was. And in one moment, it's like light breaks forth in the hearts of men and women. Understanding comes to them. I mean, that is the spirit of prophecy. He didn't come up with a new idea. It was the spirit that was resting upon his words. There was divine influence that came upon the preaching of the word. That is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. See, sometimes when we're looking, you want to know what I believe? I, don't, I, 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 I believe we are going to see the kind of movements where peace people are just prostrate on the ground before God in a sense of understanding his holiness and a reverential fear and repentance. But you know what I'm believing for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is when young men and young women all throughout Cambridge and Boston, yeah. that there comes such a boldness upon them that when you're walking through Harvard Square, you hear the declaration and the preaching of the gospel with such clarity, with such boldness, and with such authority that it pierces the minds and the hearts of those that have formerly resisted, and it draws them to repentance and that is the outpouring it's salvation it's deliverance it's healing of minds and hearts and emotions it's the manifestation of the kingdom I think sometimes when we think like what's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit I mean we pray, let's be honest we pray for it here daily we are praying for the inbreak of the kingdom of God we're praying for book of Acts outpouring of the Holy Spirit but I believe what that looks like is young men and women even even those that like Peter have been like a reed, a reed that have wavered. Those that have been weak in their faith. Those that have even stumbled. Those that have fallen into even sin. Them being restored and them being the ones like Peter to stand and declare truth. Now I want us to look a little more closely before we move on to this latter part. I moved ahead of myself. Um, <clears throat> but just to understand... That basically, I, I, I know that there's commentators, and if you've ever studied this, th there's a lot that would say that basically this was a one-time outpouring, and it was never to happen again. Um, but really, when you study out the Greek, I believe, and from what's revealed through it, is that it's not necessarily, it's the marking of time, that it was the beginning. But also, aside from that, if you look at history, how many of you know that through the, uh, like, basically 1900s to, like, 1910, that there was multiple major outpourings of the Holy Spirit across the globe? Mm -hmm. That the, the moving of the Holy Spirit, in 1904, there was the, the Welsh Revival with Evan Roberts. In 1906, the Azusa Street Re Revival right here in California, which actually had its roots from Wales. In 1907, there was the outpouring in Korea. In 1910, there was Indonesia. And then for all of you that are from New England, you know the great awakenings of this region. The accounts of, of Jonathan Edwards and Whitfield and Finney, you, you, you've heard that over and over here in this place. But that even speaks to that the Holy Spirit just didn't do it once in one moment in time. But that, that this is the portion and the inheritance for the New Testament church. That he desires to move in this, in this way and in this fashion. Um, no, that's okay. I'm just going to grab a sip of water. Um, 
But that's what I want you to clearly understand as we even move on from this, this passage of scripture in this segment is the understanding that there is countless biblical promises and it's revealed through scripture that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is not a one-time situation. Um, but even as you look at prophecy of the last days, I mean, it says in Habakkuk that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. That means every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people group, even those that have not heard the salvation message of Jesus Christ will hear. I mean, it even speaks of all throughout Isaiah that to the ends of the earth, we're going to hear this song. Glory to the righteous one. That means from the ends of the earth, there'll be worship that arises to the throne of God. To the ends of the earth, there's going to be those. It says that incense. That's the promise that we, that we see in scripture. It says in Malachi that incense will arise to the throne of God. That every place across the earth, there's going to be an offering to his name. That is not presently taking place, but that is the fulfillment of scripture. That all flesh and every tribe and every tongue will worship him. That is the outpouring that we seek. <laughs> um, I want to actually emphasize here, as we were just talking about revival history, one of the things I really want to emphasize is two things. As I read to you earlier, as far as a commentator that had commented that basically Peter, that he, he stood upon the authority of the word, that it, it was actually the Old Testament that he was quoting. When you study revival history, I mean, there's the major moves of God that's very easy to find throughout um, the archives of history. But then also, if you look and you research the heretics of the faith, there's many other moves of God that are counted amongst the heretics. And, and they're, so they're not even commonly known or commonly, like, there's not a widespread understanding of those moves. And basically the reason that is is because it's not believed that they were true moves because they ended up in error. But this is what I want to, I, I want to almost present this to you as a possibility. That what if those that are even now, like, kind of in the archives as counted as heretics, what if they started out as a genuine move of the Spirit of God? But because they weren't rooted and grounded in the word as the final authority, that that's where error came in. What if it started out as a true, sincere move of the Spirit of God, but that because, like Peter, who basically stood and his authority was the word of God, that he did not move away from the Old Testament writings, but that was his authority and that's what gave... But that, and this is even a charge to us that as we're a generation of young people that are earnestly desiring to see the inbreak of God's kingdom in our generation, that in this season and time that we're faithful to study the word, to be people yeah. of the word, yeah. so that even when we are in that season of time, the, the revival that is long awaited, that we have that history and that knowledge, even that undergirding and that foundation in the word. Um... I just want to move on here um, into the next, I, I want to make sure we wrap up on time. I'm always the, the late girl that keeps us here. Um, next in verse 22, we'll just pick up. Um, so that's where Peter was speaking of the, the outpouring. He was giving understanding to what was taking place. And he was using the Old Testament in that. And then we move on to verse 22 through 36, which basically he gives us the history of Jesus's life. He is now going to basically paint a picture and portray who Jesus is. And he says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst. 
and you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by, <clears throat> you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and have put to death. He's speaking this to them. I mean, that's shocking. I mean, could you imagine being amongst them? And right now, he's basically, he just presented, he, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man. I mean, we could spend days, I mean, even the fact that he says Jesus of Nazareth, a man, this speaks to the fact that he was fully God, yet fully man. I mean, the mystery of Jesus Christ. <laughs> anyway, we can't. But even as it says, it tested, as tested by God. It talks about the miracles and the signs. Do you even know that even amongst, like in the Quran and the Muslims, they honestly, they, they don't dispute that there is no other miracles and signs and wonders, that there is no one that has ever walked the earth that has had the manifestation of the favor of God in such heavenly influence other than Jesus Christ. Obviously, they think of him as a prophet, not the savior, but it's undeniable all throughout history as far as the, the way that God endorsed the man Christ Jesus. He being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoices and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make, make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both, both dead and buried, and his tomb is with you to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, speaking, sorry, I, I can't stop. I, I just wanted to speak about this prophecy thing, but therefore being a prophet and knowing that God had sw sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up of which we all are witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. I mean, he just lays it out right here. The birth, the, the, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This was the gospel message. And all throughout it, he basically quoted David, the psalmist David. He goes back to, you know, quoting David as the authority here as far as it being even prophesied of the man Christ Jesus. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And for those of you that know, he's quoting Psalms 110 here, uh, which is one of our favorite passages of scripture. Again, <laughs> Psalms 110. Um, but he says, my Lord, and said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
This, so that you understand this passage of scripture, I know it's confusing for some, but where it says, the Lord, it's the Lord Father, Father God, said to my Lord, who is Jesus Christ, his son, my, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Therefore, let all of the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you Christ crucified, both Lord and and Christ. Speaking, again, like I said, this passage of scripture starts out with him saying to them, men of Judea and men of Jerusalem. And now he's actually charging them with the death of Jesus. <laughs> I mean, he's saying this is how he wraps up his message. I mean, this is kind of his closing statement right here. 36, therefore, let all of the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. I mean, talk about a seeker-friendly message, huh? <laughs> I mean, it just blows my mind when you look at basically how Peter preaches the gospel here. He lays out truth. I mean, this is really the place that we have to come to as believers, that our allegiance is to Jesus Christ. Our allegiance is to undefiled truth, uncompromised truth. He's not denying the man Christ Jesus, Jesus going, well, to make you all feel better, there's many ways to the Father, and he's just one, and we all get there. I mean, the way that we sugarcoat Christianity and make everybody feel good. Honestly, I personally have this conviction that the reason that the Western church sees so, and I, I'm sorry to use the word little results, but meaning as far as we're definitely not seeing Book of Acts. I mean, I love it. I was sitting in a pastor's meeting one day, and all the pastors were, were going around kind of talking about, like, the move of God in their church, which, and let me, hear me. I believe God is moving in individual churches. I believe that he is. I know that there's good testimonies. But I also firmly believe that we have to be a people that aren't necessarily content with individual blessing or experiencing God in our personal time and us feeling like the Holy Ghost goosebumps and making sure that me and my four are okay, I think we honestly have to come to the place that even like the psalmist David said, he said, I will not give sleep to my eyelids or slumber to my eyes until I see a resting place for the Lord, until I see the inbreak of God's kingdom in my generation. I believe there has to be such a corporate cry that it's not okay just for our little church to experience the presence of God. It's not okay just for you to make sure you're making your budget and that there's a good altar call and people are responding. But the understanding of the corporate call for our nation, the understanding of the corporate crisis of our nation, the understanding of the corporate crisis, even in Boston. I know when I sit with different pastors and I'm hearing about the way God's moving in, in the church or even in individual circles, but because I know about laws and legislation that are happening um, on many, many levels that are an assault to our children, that are an assault to Christianity, like that is the true, I guess I'll say measuring line of the move of God within our midst. That is the true place of actually seeing the glory of God amongst us, where it begins to affect culture, where it begins to affect these universities, the hundreds of thousands of college students that we have resident here, that it moves beyond us experience an individual blessing to seeing a corporate blessing come upon an entire region. But it's really in this place of, I, I love how Peter really addresses 
and speaks directly to the heart of the matter. He speaks and says, you crucified both Lord and Christ. I mean, he speaks to the heart of, so as, as I was sitting in one of these pastor's gatherings, I remember my own heart just being, just so you guys know, I'm usually the only female, and I, thank God, I'm now 30, in my, thir in my 30s, um, but when I was, you know, 22, 21, and everyone's in their 60s, and they're all men, and they're old enough to be my grandfather, you do have a fine line of, like, standing and disagreeing with them, you know, you want to be respectful and honorable and all of those things, but I can remember one day my heart just, like, completely dying inside of me and just thinking, are we really content with the small measure that we're seeing? Are we really, I just remember thinking, Oh boy, now I have to speak up again. It's going to be... <laughs> and I loved it because one particular pastor actually spoke up and he said it in a way I never could have. Like, I could not have the license because of my gender and my age. <laughs> but he looked right at it and he goes, well, he goes, brothers, he goes, I certainly ain't experiencing the book of Acts in my church. And it was almost as if, like, that level of honesty and truth presented to those other pastors of, like, is your shadow healing anybody? No, really. Like, Jesus said, greater works you shall do. I mean, it's the promise of the kingdom is truly what we should be going after. And it's kind of that place of, of being content with such lesser portions and less, lesser measures. Um, so here's Peter. He presents the gospel. And basically, like I said to you, he's quoting Old Testament He's quoting the psalmist David, and I just read to you in entirety what he said. He presented Jesus Christ, born of Nazareth. He presented Jesus Christ, who did the signs, who did the wonders, who was just in their midst. Jesus Christ, whom they crucified, that he was raised from the dead. And now, actually, I just want us to look at, this is the response. This was his message. This is the first uh, message that was preached after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Verse 37 says, now... When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? That's profound. I mean, it's just scripture. But what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent. You know what I love about this? Is this truly reveals that to preach truth, the clarity of the gospel, even a convicting message, and then he calls them to repent, that it's, it's not something that is unto death, it is unto life. He says, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Basically, what he's offering is a gift. What he's offering is a precious gift. And see, this is the place that as, as the New Testament church in America, that we have to realize that the presentation of Jesus Christ for who he is, without trying to dress him up in cultural apparel and the way that is appealing to the mind and the heart of man, without trying to do anything to present him differently, but who he is, the God of the Bible, that he and of himself, that he is a gift and he is the most priceless, precious gift that can be offered. And really our urgency and our zeal should be to represent the man Christ Jesus. To preach the man Christ Jesus. I love in the New Testament where Jesus actually comes to Peter and he says, who do you say that I am? 
And Peter's response is, he has that revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, you are the Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus' response is that no flesh and blood has revealed this to you, Peter. He goes on to say that basically that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And upon this rock, the rock of Jesus Christ, that the gates of hell shall not prevail. That this is what the church is built upon and the gates of hell shall not prevail. That's pretty simple. I mean, we kind of do get into, and I know I get into meeting with like next generation leaders and then meeting with like the fathers and the mothers in the faith. And there's kind of like, what's the message for the hour? What's the church supposed to be representing? Like it's all these mysteries of how we grow the kingdom. What's the face of the church and culture? All of those things. But how about Jesus says to him, he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail. It's the rock of the revelation of Jesus Christ. How many of us in our day-to-day grind in living, even the way that we relate to others, the way that we are going about building business, building ministry, all of the affairs of our life, if we live within that understanding that everything that we do and every decision that we make, you are Christ, son of the living God. If we had a greater revelation of who Jesus Christ is, how it would change everything. It changes our emotional makeup. Even where it said earlier in this passage, rest in hope. There's a place of rest that comes to our lives. There's even a place of hope that we are impregnated with, with the revelation of Jesus Christ. A hope that no circumstance can alter or change. There is a rest that comes to our soul with the revelation of Jesus Christ that no amount of adversity, no amount of hardship, no economic collapse, nothing in culture or society can shake that rest and hope that we find in Jesus Christ. Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his words were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to the kingdom. And they continued, we just, basically we need to wrap it up here, but what we're going to do to wrap it up is we're actually going to look at, um, after this 3,000 were added, basically the first, uh, the birthing of the New Testament church here, um, we're going to look right now basically at how they carried about and basically what they did and how they lived their lives and, and truly basically how church is defined. It says, um, in verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The Apostles' Doctrine is basically studying the life and the teachings of Jesus Christ. You have it right there. Each one of us can be steadfast in the Apostles' Doctrine. If we'll study the life and the teachings of Jesus Christ. Uh, Continued steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine, in the fellowship, and in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. 
Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as everyone had need. I just want to make sure I make a note here that in verse 45 where it talks about the selling of possessions, I feel like whenever I teach the book of Acts, it's almost like people in the room are kind of like, oh boy, here we go. We're going to like start a little cult over here. We're all going to sell everything and live in community. I want to really just emphasize that this was not necessarily required this spoke of their extravagant zeal. It spoke not necessarily of even um, something that God required or asked of them. It was their desire to rid themselves of selfishness, to live for one another. So, you know, do we make this part of our, everybody go sell everything and we're going to give all of our, <laughs> I love it. But if anybody feels so called. <laughs> so continuing daily, I love this word, daily, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily <laughs> those who were being saved. So, you know, we really need to wrap it up for time's sake, but I mean, this in and of itself I mean, there's so much to look at as far as the rhythm of their life together, the place that they were praying together, they were breaking bread together, they were in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in one accord together, and daily souls were added. Really, I mean, I don't want to add anything to the scripture, and I don't want to take anything away. But what I can say is, is in Acts 2, what we find here, the preaching of Peter's first sermon that he, that he taught and the results that came. I think oftentimes in our Western culture that we, we, we're looking for results that we either want to come immediately or we're even looking for the promises of God without coming the way that God has prescribed and the way that God has called us. We're looking for the outcome without actually coming the process and going the way that scripture calls us to. And I mean, if there's anything that we as a community do, that, but to give ourselves zealously to saying, God, we want to embody that which you desire in, in your New Testament church. We want to be the embodiment. Um, I want us to go ahead and stand to our feet. really two things closing in our response and prayer. Number one is just even this um, aspect that we were talking about your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. I, I want us, as we're closing out today, this is point number one. Uh, there's two things that we're going to pray into. But number one, I want each and every one of you, you can close your eyes and I'm going to actually pray for you. But I want each and every one of us to understand that whatever realm of society or business or medicine or government, or education, or ministry, or missions. That the Lord has called us to live with that spirit of prophecy. That wherever we are, that whatever we're doing, it's really the reality of who he is in every given moment. That he speaks to us, that we hear from him, that we discern what he is doing, how he is moving. And we cooperate and align ourselves. See, this is the God of the Bible. We don't just read upon the pages of the Bible how he moved and the extraordinary things that he did of old. 
but that in our day-to-day life that he wants a living exchange and encounter with us. So, Father, right now I ask, Lord, even as your word declares in Revelations, that the testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. Lord, I ask, Lord, right now, God, even for every individual in this place, God, we come before you, Father, and Lord, we break off, Lord, every mindset and even every barrier that we have had a certain stigma or understanding of what prophecy is, as if it's restricted to the foretelling of the future. But God, as we even see Peter, that he was declaring the word of the Lord, in that moment and in that time and that the spirit of revelation struck their hearts god we say that we want to live with hearts that are fully alive before you spirits that are fully awakened to your voice and to your leading so god we say lord even now tenderize our hearts to the leading of your spirit tenderize our spiritual ears to hear from you and discern, Lord, what it is you're speaking to our hearts. Lord, I even ask, Lord, over every individual in this place, God, that even as Peter was not declaring anything mysterious, but it was the written word of God. Lord, I ask so that when we open up our Bible to read the words upon the pages, Lord, we ask, Father, awaken our hearts to hear your voice. Lord, speak to our spirits through your word, oh God. We say we long to be people of your word, rooted and grounded in the authority of your word. God, I ask, Lord, even right now, God, would you awaken hearts, Lord, even with a fresh love for your word. I just want to pray specifically, if there's anybody here It almost feels as though that whenever you've gone to read the Bible, that it's almost as if you're not either getting anything out of it, or you don't understand, or almost even in a sense, if you felt like you've just said, God's not speaking to me. I can't hear the voice of God. We just want to pray for you really quickly. If you want to respond, I want to pray for you. Because this is what I want you to understand, is that God speaks to each and every one of us. He desires to, but oftentimes, it's that place where... We sometimes don't even know that it's his voice speaking. And sometimes even when we do sit with our Bible, there's so much of the day's um, chattering and so many voices that it's hard just to silence our minds and silence our hearts and hear the voice of God. So if there's anybody that specifically wants prayer concerning that, I just want to pray for you before we move on to the next point.
hearts are tied to you, God, as a community that prays and seeks your face, Lord. How we long for the outpouring of your spirit, God, upon our city, upon our lives, God, upon culture. Oh, Father, this is what our hearts so long for. God, we just ask, Lord, that this community would grow in expectation of the promises of God coming forth, the outpouring of your spirit upon the flesh, upon the mind and the hearts of your people in this city. Oh, God, we look to you, Father. We wait, God, so many in the body of Christ want Acts chapter 2, Father, we forget Acts chapter 1, the waiting and tearing, the praying for the release the promises of God. Father, do it in our time, do it in our generation. Tie our hearts, Lord. Tie our hearts to prayer, to community, to giving ourselves, to seeking your face, seeking your kingdom first, that all things will be added come from the overflow of the posture of our hearts. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. A couple of us are still getting ministry. We're going to transition and we're going to break bread together. We have some food. Lots of food. Probably the last time we did this I think we didn't have enough. So this time I think we're going to have one eight. Praise God. So what we're going to do if you're going to hang out, uh, maybe just we're going to stack these chairs to uh, my, left. my left, probably over there, we'll bring up two tables and then we'll...